Jenna. And I'm Sam. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everyone, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I am Jenna, and I actually have a guest host with me today. Mark, my coworker in the Africa department, is going to join us and help us with this interview. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much, Jenna. I'm really excited to be here. I know filling for Sam's a pretty big role. Um, he leaves big shoes to fill, but I'm excited to give it my best shot. And I'm really excited today specifically because we've got a great guest with us today. We've got Dr. Jesse Watusik, who's one of our wildlife physiologists at Crew. Welcome, Jesse. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yes, thanks for coming. We have so many questions because uh, what is it to be a scientist? I don't really understand, but we have so many things we can talk to Jesse about. She's done amazing things around the zoo. Most of you listening probably follow along with the Facebook page and have seen that our sloth lightning is pregnant. You've probably seen uh, Tamandua ultrasound. So Jesse helps out with ultrasounds and so, so much more and even was the first person to ever capture a Nile hippo on an ultrasound. Um, so she helped out with Fiona and our BB training and we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became a scientist, why you were interested, what does a scientist do? Sure. Um, so I actually grew up on a farm and so I had, I had lots of experience working with animals, cows, pigs, and I knew I really wanted to get involved with working with animals in a career type format, but I didn't know what that was going to look like. So I ended up going to school for animal science and while I was there I fell in love with the topic of reproduction. I just thought it was really, really interesting to me. I liked all of the little intricacies and the details and how things are different in between different species. Um, so I started out pursuing on um, that kind of studies, just really reading a lot about repro and um, getting into that field a little bit. And then I took a conservation class and I realized that that was also a calling that I had and I really wanted to be able to um, combine repro with conservation, if at all possible, and I started contacting people at zoos and saying, hey, is this a thing? Does this exist? Is this type of job available? How do I get there? What are the steps that I need to take? So my undergrad degree is in animal science, and then I pursued a master's degree, and I actually studied chickens, which are not wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It helped me dive into um, the really like nitty-gritty ideas of how you do research and how you can use animals to understand different um, biological functions um, in different ways and that type of thing. And then eventually I got a hold of somebody at the National Zoo my, who ended up becoming my um, advisor as for my PhD. And so I um, went on to do my PhD at George Mason University, where I worked with Dama gazelle, which are a really highly endangered, uh, critically endangered gazelle um, from Africa. And I just fell in love completely with the animals, with the people who are spending every day of their lives just really trying to create opportunities for these animals to thrive and survive and um, to really save species. So. Yeah, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. But. Oh my gosh, yeah, now yeah. I have so many questions. Oh no. Like, <laughs> you went to school and you got an undergrad degree. In that moment, like, as you were an undergrad, did you plan on becoming a scientist? Or, like, it, you just 
Do you write certain papers? You, it almost sounds like you kind of have to make your own career happen in the sense that you reach out to people, you study yeah. something, and you hope somebody's interested. It in, takes so much initiative. Yes, yeah, like, on your own part to make it happen. Yeah, I, you know, it, everybody, every scientist that I know, especially in this field, has a really different pathway. Okay. Um, and I'm, I didn't go into it knowing that okay. that's what I wanted to do. I think a lot of people who start out, who love animals from a really young age, think, I'm going to be a vet. Um, that's the only option that there is out there. And that's not true. There's right. so many other options. <laughs> but you don't hear about but them. But you don't hear yes. about them. And I didn't grow up near a zoo at all. Um, so I'd never been to an actual zoo until I was wow. an adult. That's uh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> so, yeah, it was... It, yeah, it just added to my love of um, the this whole community. But... Yeah, I think I just got to the point where I, you know, I was really into this, um, really into reproduction. I took this course, and so I ended up just going to my professor and saying, like, how do I do more of this? Like, this okay. is the one class that's available. Like, what else can I do? Um, and just talking to them. And so I ended up working in a lab just doing, like, washing dishes and, like, observing other grad students to see what they do and how lab work works. And I really enjoy lab work. Okay. I think that's a weird thing for some people, but I really enjoy the structure, like the protocols, having a question, finding the answer. These things are really um, fascinating to me. So I ended up just working through a couple labs. I worked in two labs as an undergrad, and then one of those labs I decided to stick with for my master's. So I kind of fell into research. I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, but it just became it. So yeah, it's it's hard to say, like, here's exactly how you should do something, because I think some people know that that's what they want to do, but it's okay if you don't know. I changed my mind a thousand times of what my degree was going to look like throughout time, but, um, That yeah. just sounds so scary yeah, and, like, the unknown, and I, it's almost goes to, like, field research or people that are out in the field as conservationists. I'm like, I truly just don't understand how you get there, what you're doing, yeah, how you make a project started. happen. And I know you've applied for lots of grants, and you yeah. do all sorts of things. I mean, uh, off there are so many questions yeah, I for you. <laughs> I have a quick side yeah. question, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So I know you got your undergrad and your master's at Cornell. Yeah. I just want to know, like, what's the experience like going to an Ivy League school? <laughs> I picture it being, like, so brutally difficult that the course works miserable. Um, but what's that like? like? Yes, it is. But also... <laughs> it is, okay. Yeah. I got confirmation. Um, I had a unique experience. So yeah, I went Ivy League, but I also couldn't really afford Ivy League. <laughs> so I ended up working full time. Oh my gosh. So oh my goodness. I think that that probably added to the um, difficulty. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> Ivy League are not working full time yeah. during college. is yes. brutal. Yeah. And I like to tell people this too, and I'm not, it's not, it is not a feather in my cap at all, but like I came pretty close to not continuing after my first year um it college is a huge adjustment yes. for a lot of people um but I also um I didn't find my niche right away I didn't find like a, a good group of friends because it was always working or always mm -hmm. studying um and so I think that made it harder as I like got as I got more in tune with what I wanted to do and how things were working out and got more adjusted to the place um 
it got better. But my first year was pretty bad, and I have really bad GPA from my freshman year of college. Um, so that's to say that you can still succeed at life if you have that grades. <laughs> I'm sure her grades are better than mine, sure, and I didn't yeah. work full-time. Uh, can I ask what your job was while you're working full-time during Oh, I had three jobs. Three, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, wow. yeah I worked um, in f two different food prep okay. type area, like selling pizzas and stuff. And then I also worked at, oh, I should have four jobs. I can't even keep track. <laughs> um, I worked at the Swine Barn um, on the weekends, and then I also worked at a library. Okay. So, yeah. I was a little curious if it was, like, school-related, animal-related, or if so, you're just... whole big mix. Yeah, all a lot yeah. of things. It was all at the, it was all at the school. So okay. it was a library at the school, so mm -hmm. I weren't at the school, etc. But yeah. Well, you were amazing to me before that. So <laughs> that is <laughs> even impressive. more impressive. Jeez. Yes. Oh my gosh. So yeah, a million questions. What's next? So you you know get your undergrad, you decide to do your masters. Yeah. And what are you doing while getting your masters? Like, what are you focusing on? So I was focusing on endocrinology okay. primarily, which is the study of hormones. And we were looking at hormones that influenced um, egg development in chickens. So laying chickens will lay an egg essentially every day, and then they take like one day off every 40 days or something like that. It's huh. pretty crazy. Um, but the cool thing about it is because they're, they're, because they're laying an egg every day, that means that they're growing an egg every day too. Wow. So they have this constant flow of um, information, whereas humans or mammals, um, we have eggs or oocytes that, you know, you get about one per month-ish, depending on the animal. Um, so you can learn a lot really fast with chickens in that way. And so our lab was interested in what regulates um, egg growth and development, but also how, um, how ovarian cancer works. So there's some there's some theories out there that say that ovulating multiple times um, can increase your chances of ovarian cancer. Oh. And so because chickens ovulate so much, they're the only other species that develops ovarian cancer spontaneously. Wow. So we were also working on, yeah, using treatments to try to prevent ovarian cancer in chickens in the hopes that eventually that could um, be used in humans later. So here, eat some... I don't know, flaxseed or, or whatever. Um, I don't have an answer for you. Things are, you know, these studies go on for decades. Years, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was really interesting. Wow. Yeah. I think that's very interesting that, like, you can kind of take something with livestock or chickens and you kind of extrapolate it. I think that's how a lot of exotic wildlife research comes about is it starts yeah. in domesticated animals and then you kind of go from there. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And like, I almost feel like the next step is zoos because yes. you can get hands-on with the animals mm -hmm. here a lot easier than you can in the wild. But obviously there's research being done in the wild. So the Dama gazelle that you were working with were in a zoo, correct? Yeah. And, um, well, yeah. I mean, do you, do you know how many are left in the wild? I think it's less than a hundred. Wow. Less yeah. than a hundred of a species. That's, you know, yeah, you don't stressful. hear that often. I'm sure. So stressful. Yeah. They're so sweet. They're my favorite. I love them. They're just, their faces are just so cute and they're so docile and just calm, which is really, yeah. Gazelle are not, not typically yeah, known. Actually, they're I known know. as the potato chips right. <laughs> out of the savannah. Like they're everyone's you snack. You can startle them. And of course, prey species are all like that too. But I, that's part of what I really loved is being able to create relationships with them where they trust 
seemingly trusted me. I'm not sure if they did or not, but it seemed like they did. They weren't startled by my presence. That's so. awesome. And what zoo were you at when you were studying them? That was um, National Zoo. It was okay. actually at um, the Conservation Biology Institute, the Smithsonian's um, group out in Front Royal. So there's, um, it's kind of a, I don't know what to call it, like an offshoot of the zoo. On-site like, facility. Yeah, yeah. there okay. you go. Yep. And what exactly were you studying or doing with them on a daily basis? Like, break it down for us that are like, what does a scientist do? <laughs> sure. Um, we do a lot of different things. So my day is never the same. I have... I, it just depends. But with the Dama Gazelles, um, I was collecting a lot of poop. Okay. Um, with especially endangered species, we do our absolute best to use non-invasive procedures to do anything that we're doing. So... Um, that means using whatever biological samples are the easiest and the safest and just the calmest to get. And so poop is really easy. To get. <laughs> um, and we can tell a lot based on these samples. Like hormone, we can measure different hormones and see where they're at in their cycle. If they may be pregnant, um, if animals should be paired for breeding at a particular time, um, if perhaps they're experiencing stress at some level, acute or chronic. So there's a lot that we can tell from these samples. So I would start my mornings by going out and collecting poop samples from each, um, just basically waiting for them to What poop. a better way to start the day. Yeah, I mean, we're shoveling it, we're used to it, we help collect the poop for our yeah. scientists here at the zoo, but I still, like, okay, you take the poop, and then you put it in a serum, and the serum magically gives you this answer of what hormones are in there? Or can you explain that? For, sure. Dumb it down for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we kind of, I mean, simplistically here, uh, we kind of make like a slurry. We, call okay. it, we do an extraction, so we're basically like kind of making the hormones more readily available for measuring. Okay. Um, and then we use antibodies. So an antibody is going to be anything that binds... Um, an antigen. So if um, it basically recognizes anything um, that it's it, it works like a lock and key. That's a good example. Okay. So for every antigen, um, it is going to look a little bit different. So antigens can be anything on on your cells, um, on a virus, on a um, bacteria. They all have like little um, distinctive features, right? So like. You, as a person, this is a really weird example, would be the Jenna antigen. Okay. And so only one lock is going to suit you as a key because you um, are you and no one else is like you. So we, we, know what that, we know what that lock looks like. So we have a bunch of locks and we throw it in there and they bind to the keys, which are the hormones. Oh my goodness. This is getting out of control. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the closest I've ever come to understanding something like this. So. Um, and essentially, the lock has a little light on it, and so when the key binds the lock, the light turns on, and we can measure the light and how much of the light that there is, and it kind of translates to how, many, how much hormone is in there. It's probably... How long does this whole process take? Like, is this a... It happens in a day, two days, a week? Or? Um... It can take uh, a day, a couple hours. It just okay. depends. Extractions take longer sometimes. They're overnight. Um, but once you're past the extraction, an assay takes many, maybe like an hour or two. So it's not terrible. You Mostly we're just waiting on samples more than anything. <laughs> and then you have to process the samples. So there's a lot of, you have to crush, you have to dry the poop, crush the poop, then extract it. And we have a lot of great volunteers that help. What does it mean to thing. extract it? Um, to basically pull the hormones out of it okay. to get rid of the junk that you don't need, and essentially, yeah. 
I wish you guys could see my face. I'm not I'm like <laughs> if you were doing. It's so much easier to understand if you're doing it. Okay. I, I, I don't know if this works. This is how y'all work, but for me, when I can do something, I understand it so much better than like reading about it Definitely. or hearing about it. And so I think that's. Um, I'm just such a more hands-on learner. And that's also why school was probably hard for me in the beginning, too, is because, like, taking stuff from a book and then putting it yeah. back on paper is way different than being like, oh, wait, I'm actually, like, I'm pulling this up. What am I doing in this step? Oh, okay, I'm putting this in that. What does that do? So when I'm teaching somebody in the lab, we go step by step. You're adding this because this does this, and then you're going to do this because you need to do this. And then I th it makes so much more sense, so... I'm going to let it go after this, but I still just can't... Like, also, who came up with these serums or whatever you're putting the poop in that can extract a hormone? Th that person is... People are amazing. I don't yes. get how you can put poop in something and then hormones show up. But anyways, let's move on. That's You're, you're amazing. Do you care if we take a quick step back? So Absolutely. I'm sure a lot of our listeners that come to the zoo aren't really exactly sure what crew is. Can yeah. you just give like a, a oh, yes, brief thanks, Mark. overview? Like, sure. What is CREW? What's it stand for? What do you guys do there, really? Yeah, so CREW is the Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife, and we're basically the research wing of the zoo. Um, we use primarily reproductive and propagative um, techniques to um, try to help endangered species. So our, our main goal is to use science to save species, and we work with both plant and animal species. Um, and we, so we have four main signature groups. We're a really small group of scientists, so we kind of have to focus our energies, our funding, et cetera, on specific projects. And those projects are um, rhinos, polar bears, exceptional plants and imperiled cats. And so those are our main focuses, but we also also do work with a lot of other species. So as Jenna mentioned earlier, I work with the sloth as well and a, a bunch of others too, but those are our main focuses just to keep us kind of on track and like working towards our goals in that area. So um, yeah, we just, um, I don't know, do you have specific questions about what we do or? Uh, I'm not sure if that's... Basically, you guys are the ones that are here helping us bring science to the forefront of the zoo and conservation in a way that we can make it happen on grounds with research and science. Is yeah. that a good... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, we try to support management by providing um, answers to questions that may arise during animal care. Um, we try to... Um, create different techniques and protocols that can help management. So a good example um, is our cryobiobank, um, where it's basically a bunch of tanks of liquid nitrogen where we can store different tissue samples, including sperm and eggs um, um, and different tissues. And basically, that's it's a way for us to be able to preserve genetic material from different animals, whether they still be alive or whether they've passed. And then hopefully down the road, we can use those tissues or cells um, in a manner to help uh, maintain genetic diversity within a population. So some of the work that we do is um, assisted reproductive technologies or ARTs. Um, where we're doing artificial insemination or embryo transfer or those types of things. So if, if natural breeding fails for a particular animal, 
uh, we can try to use these techniques to help them to propagate the species um, and maintain diversity. I know it's kind of a tough question just to say, what is crew? What yes. do you guys, there's so it's much you lot. couldn't possibly yeah, be boiled down to one or two bullet points. Yes. <laughs> and so I want to get back to that and you do all sorts of traveling and things to other zoos to help keep the genetic diversity and, mm -hmm. and possibly keep animals alive in the future with all of the frozen embryos and sperm and different things. But I took you off track with the Dama Gazelle. You were collecting poop. You'd go. Oh, yeah. Your date, like your day-to-day -day thing. So you can go in more into that also. But then I guess the final question is, what were you trying to find out or help with those sure. gazelle? So two things. So I focused, um, I, did, I did a lot of hormone work, and we were trying to establish um, cycling patterns for that species. And what we ended up finding, which I didn't actually expect to find, was that they're seasonal. And so they stop cycling over the winter months, which is really... Um, important for managers to know because we were actually attempting to artificially inseminate them oh. during the winter months and we were failing and we didn't know why we were failing. It, you're not going to be able to inseminate a female that isn't actually cycling, so you have to wait until she comes back. See, I love knowing that. That makes me like see how the science and what, what you're studying helps you know, yeah. actually make a difference in how it's applied, I yes, guess. Yes, you can like use that. those cycling patterns to help the species breed in the future, yep, exactly. exactly. And not do unnecessary unnecessary exactly. immobilizations or something with the AI procedure that could be risky for right. no reason. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, so that was one thing. And then the other side of my work was working on sperm physiology and how sperm survive cryo. Um, okay. So... Um, each species is different, so all cells are different, and how they are capable of surviving freezing, which is essentially what crab um, preservation is, uh, simplistically, um, is different. So the additives that you have to use are going to be different for every species, and sometimes every male, which is really frustrating. Oh, <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, so it was working on developing techniques that would help sperm survive cryopreservation so that when we thought it later that it can be used in um, projects like artificial insemination and that type of thing. So, yeah, that was getting down into, like, the very nitty-gritty of, like, cellular mechanisms and that type of thing. But What does the cryopreservation process look like? I picture Mr. Freeze from Batman walking in and just freezing the whole <laughs> room. Like, what is I wish. I, so actually, one of the projects that I'm working on here, that I did work on here um, with rhinos specifically, is trying to make cryopreservation more field friendly because it is not, it is not something that some, it is easy to do off the bat. And so crew as an entity or an institution doesn't exist at many, at many other zoos. There are a few zoos that have research facilities, but there aren't many. And so we want to be able to make protocols and techniques that people anywhere could, anyone with animal care um, experience could do. Um, so in a typical cryopreservation, and they're all different, but protocol, what you would do is start with your sample, you're going to start chilling it down. Um, sometimes there's fancy equipment for that, but you can use the fridge occasionally. <laughs> um, and then um, you're going to be added, adding what we call extenders, which is basically extending the life of the sperm. Um, cryoprotectants, which are pro basically protecting the sperm from um, during the cryo process, uh, because when you freeze, you get you get um, ice crystals, and ice crystals can damage 
the little organelles of the sperm. So we're really trying to avoid that. So the whole process takes a few hours. You're adding different things. You're chilling at a specific rate. Um, eventually you get to the point where you're pulling them up into like these little tiny straws and um, putting them into liquid nitrogen. But there are like very many steps in between that you have to be aware of. And once it's a certain temperature, you shouldn't really be touching it with your hands and all of these things. So for the Rhino project, what I was doing was trying to develop methods where we could do it way faster, basically cut time down to about 15 minutes, which we were able to do, which was awesome. Amazing. Congrats. Yeah, Thanks. It's a huge success. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And also we found, um, we created the, well, we use an extender where once we add it, basically we can just pull it up into, pull it up into the straws, stick it in the fridge for 15 minutes, and then you just drop it in the liquid nitrogen and it's done. So that's something that I can teach somebody to do from afar and just say, okay, here's what you're going to do. You have your sample, you add this, stick it in the fridge, drop it in the liquid nitrogen, and you're good to go. So we really were able to streamline it, make it way more field-friendly so that people, practitioners at other zoos can use this even though they don't necessarily have the experience of cryopreservation prior to now. So next steps, I'd really like to get rid of the liquid nitrogen part, but that's, <laughs> that is a pie in the sky dream. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe someday. So cool. Okay. I'm uh, glad you mentioned the, the fact that you know, we take it for granted working at the Cincinnati Zoo. We've got such an amazing research facility right across the zoo that we can walk over to at any time. But this isn't something that most facilities have. Most zoos do not have state-of-the-art, world-class research facilities. And we're very fortunate here to have that. And have you guys on site at all times Absolutely. to come take ultrasounds of our animals. Yes, and... or do, you know, poop analysis for us to see if an animal <laughs> yes. is cycling and all sorts of things. So you studied the Dama Gazelle, helped with that, and then what year were you finished with that? When did you come to the Cincinnati Zoo? How did you end up here? Sure. I graduated um, the end of 2015. I started here in 2016, so I've been here five and a half years-ish. Uh, when I started, I, was, uh, I joined the Rhino Research Signature Group, and I was working on studying a disease called Iron Overload Disorder that rhinos get. Um, other species can get it as well, but it's including humans. But it's it's different across the species how it um, develops and how it reacts and what and the outcomes are very different. So we were really working on trying to find a diagnostic for it. Unfortunately, rhinos that are sick with this until the very end, you can kind of tell what was wrong with them, but up until then it's very generic symptoms, so you just know that they're sick, you don't know why they're sick, and the treatment for it is very specific, so kind of don't want to treat an animal for this um, without knowing that that is what it is. So we were working on developing a tool to help us diagnose it much earlier, so that hopefully we could um, treat it earlier and stop it. Unfortunately, um, we had a little bit of success. We're, we're making progress. It's just very slow, but thankfully there haven't been many that have exhibited extreme cases of IOD recently, so at least there's that. Um, I know we had a couple uh, here at the Cincinnati Zoo, the Sumatran rhinos that had IOD, and it was a very sad situation, um, but they all seem to be doing quite well over in Sumatra right yeah. now. So. That's good. Yes. Um, so from there, and I, I did some repro studies with the rhino group too, and then I um, kind of transitioned into the polar bear team. 
and I have a whole nother set of um, challenges there. It's, I, I may be the most, um, I don't know, this may not be accurate, but it seems like I have a more diverse um, like animal selection yeah. than most. You help out with a lot side. of different types yeah. of projects. Yeah. So, you got your feet in a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah for better or worse. <laughs> but jumping from jumping from hoofstock to rhinos was a little bit different, but rhinos are kind of similar to hoofstock. But then going from rhinos to polar bears, that was a complete like, change for me. So it was a lot of me relearning biology. Um, polar bears are very, bears are very different from rhinos, believe it or not. Um, and these guys are seasonal. They experience embryonic diapause, which means when they conceive, their embryo um, basically stops growing soon after conception until late fall or mid fall and then they starts growing again so that's a new thing rhinos don't do that as far as i know what's the reason <laughs> for that in bears oh that's a really good question and i wish i had an answer for you um it doesn't it, have anything to do with like hibernation or like food or so, resources yeah they maybe okay sure yes wow I, yeah i thought it would be like i don't know Absolutely. a really easy reason well explanation it's so it's the difference between like knowing for sure something and assuming true something. Yes. so it probably has to do with resources when resources are available you know when there's um sea ice for the bears to go out on and catch seals and eat that's gonna be happening um in the winter months so they may be waiting for that time but um, why, why they don't just breed then in September and Good point. that, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Is They're, that similar to the Dama Gazelle? Like, do they not, are they not able to, I can't think of the right way to say this, reproduce or get pregnant during the dry yeah, season, yeah. during the winter season because sure. of resources or is that it an seems, assumption? It seems like it's associated with season. So you can, you can look at like rainfall and temperature and make some correlations based on when they're, when they're calving uh, for the Dama gazelle specifically. Um, but also depending on where they're living, things can change. So with the Dama gazelles, if the closer you get to the equator, the less likely they are to be seasonal. Okay. Um, so there's that. And then with the polar bears, if you have like a polar bear down in Australia, let's say their season flips. Um, I don't know how to say that, but it's opposite. The yeah. seasons are opposite. Down right. Down and the so south. it's based, it's based on that. So, and we mean polar bears in zoos, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely yes. Good point. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely there's definitely some signals that are happening that we're not sure of. And we are looking into it. That's one of the main projects that we have upcoming um, is a project to be looking at things like vitamin D levels, melatonin levels, um, all of these things that are associated with the amount of sunlight you're getting, even though they're in a place that doesn't get very much sunlight or a lot of sunlight, yeah. depending on the time of year. So and. It's just all very complicated, and there's just still a lot of unknowns. Um, so, yeah, I think it's probably a safe assumption, maybe. I don't know if it's a safe assumption, but it's just an assumption that it's based on food availability. But I guess going back to your question, though, it does make sense to ask, like, why did they go through that process rather than just only breeding during certain times of the year? Or, yeah, yeah it doesn't make sense. Will you remind us what it's called? Embryonic? Diapause. 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 Because Diapause. did we... 
the wallabies can do that too, correct? Sure. And that's why yeah. we had a surprise baby yes, wallaby. Yes. And that was very cool because she had a baby. And so that, that diapause lasted a complete other baby's existence. Yes. That <laughs> so, I know. there, And there are other animals that experience diapause certainly um mink and many other species as well so it's not it's not unique to polar bears but it is just it's just really interesting so we're still trying to figure out all the puzzle pieces to that in hopes that we can use that to determine um how to support polar bears in their reproduction uh, because right now we are just not at a replacement situation like we don't get enough cubs to replace the polar bears mm -hmm. Um, that we're losing so it's really sad and we just don't know when pregnancy is failing or if it is failing we don't know if they're not conceiving or if they're losing their conception or later um, during diapause or if the or if it's even later during true gestation so I don't I don't have an answer for you I'm working on it yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so you're on the polar bear team now yes and that's what you guys are working on yeah and I do think it's so important to like make sure you're focusing on research with species like this because obviously with climate change, you know, polar yes. bears in the wild, we're seeing their numbers drop. So it's extremely important now more than ever that we're yeah. able to come up with a stable population in zoos across the U.S. Yeah. So, well, and hopefully it's helpful for wildlife for wildlife um, scientists who are out in the field doing work. I'm I'm not sure. We'll see what kind of results that we get, but. If we are saying, you know, increasing temperatures seem to be um, impacting this, we already know that um, melting sea ice is really impacting food availability mm -hmm. for them. So um, just, yeah, hopefully we, we always aim to support management of um, ex situ populations or populations in zoos, but we also would like to help management of populations ex situ or in the wild as well. So we always try to design our projects so that they can be useful um, in more than one way. So unfortunately, very sadly, we lost little one, our polar bear that was, you know, a resident here for many, many years and very, very loved. So what does that mean for you and your team and the research? Are you traveling a lot? Do you have a lot of genetic material here at the zoo that you're studying? What do you do? Yeah, we work with a lot of other zoos. So essentially, like any zoo that in North America that is an AZA zoo and has polar bears, we are um, constantly collaborating with them. And we have <laughs> tons of samples. So I think we still have the claim over the largest polar bear poop bank <laughs> in the world. Um, but I'm not sure. It's a good flex right there. Yeah, That's a good <laughs> But we've also, um, a lot of teams have had really great success with um, doing blood draws recently. So we have, at this point, we've been able to collect hundreds of blood samples from polar bears from all sorts of zoos. So that doesn't require any traveling. They okay. can mail them to us. Um, and so serum is kind of like the gold standard. We always want serum because it's... Um, it gives you an immediate picture as opposed to uh, feces or urine, which is going to give you a few days behind because it takes time to process of course. Um, whatever um, the hormones through your system. So um, we love serum, but serum is not the easiest thing to get from um, 
a polar bear or anything. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> Most animals, yeah. But they are working, at least a lot of the polar bear teams are working to get uh, their polar bears to participate. And they do. They willingly participate in these trainings, and it's amazing. I can't even get my dog to take a pill. Right. Never mind get blood from a polar bear. So That's one of the best parts of the job, and having crew on grounds and researchers that can come help us, you know, our job is to help train the animals and get you guys the materials you need to yeah. do this research where I clearly have no idea the science behind <laughs> anything that, that is going on, but we get to play a very, very small part in it as keepers. No, we are so appreciative yeah. too. It's not a small part. It is a huge part because without it, we wouldn't be able to do anything. Yeah. Um, so we rely heavily on keepers, care staff, um, everybody that's involved. It's and we're entirely grateful to them as a community because it's just so, it lets us do our job, which is great. And and it's just one thing that zoos are doing good. Like we like to point that out, you know, we're taking care of these animals, giving them the best homes we can, the best care, the best food and mental health and all sorts of things. And so these, this training is their choice. You have this giant polar bear choosing to participate yeah. they can walk away you can't hold a polar bear down <laughs> you're not immobilizing them right. for this you know they're getting rewarded for presenting typically their paw allowing you to stick a needle in draw that blood sitting still for it you know in a safe protected way like there's so much that goes into it yeah. and i think it's really cool that there are people that you know take care of the animals that are able to help train them get scientists what they need to hopefully make a difference not only for animals in zoos but in the wild and yeah. yeah yeah we're it's so important and really really so much appreciated it's a true collaborative process and everyone's got their role that they play in that process and yeah. everything's just as important as the other it's yeah fascinating one of the the most the things that we can be most proud of here you know actually making a difference that way yeah. so very very cool i mean i could ask a million questions about a million projects <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I guess it's really interesting to me that, you know, there's a team of people and you have said you've bounced around, um, and you do a million different things, but it is really interesting to me and a lot of other people that you also are doing these ultrasounds on animals that we haven't, yeah. you know, ever seen before. So can you maybe highlight like your top three favorite moments as far as ultrasounds go or different, um, pregnancy, like surprises or things you've learned sure. doing ultrasounds? I think probably, this is more of a generic thought to start with, is that my favorite part of ultrasound is telling the keepers that they have a pregnant animal because they get so <laughs> excited. <laughs> and We're like I'm, parents, we really yeah. are, we find out. Like. Um, I've seen like giggling and like yelling and crying and everybody's just so stoked and it's really really exciting um so i love ultrasounds for that reason it's really fun i bet um, yeah and i you mentioned fiona briefly earlier that was a big deal for me because i already loved hippos this was pre this was pre the craziness around her, but um, nobody, as far as we know, we reached out to colleagues at all sorts of zoos to say, hey, how do you ultrasound a hippo? And nobody knew because no one had dried before. So that was cool to be the first to attempt it and to actually be able to pull it off um, on a Nile hippo. That was a big deal. Absolutely. So that was exciting. Um, 
I've ultrasounded Isla, the Tamandua, and she's just great. I call her my best patient because she really just sits there and <laughs> she just eats and she sticks her belly out and um, she's just so consistent and easy. So I really love ultrasounding her and just seeing her progression and being able to measure things like fetal skull size and based on that we were able to determine when um, when she was most likely to give birth and that type of thing. So. That was pretty cool too. She gave birth to Manny. I can't remember the date. It was a couple years ago now, but like that was just so cool to see um, as well. And now we're ultrasounding lightning, the sloth, throughout her pregnancy. Have other zoos been doing sloths? Yeah, yeah. I guess they don't move a whole lot. Maybe they're yeah. kind of easier patients. I don't know. Yeah. We're not the first, um, but not many. So, okay. you know, like all, all information is good information. Definitely. Though. And the more information that we can get, the more we understand about what's going on. So um, with her, it's just been the, the, the bigger challenge was getting her comfortable with the situation. So we started out with a sloth that was like, no, I'm not, I don't think I want to do this today. And quite frequently, we just weren't able to conduct an exam because she didn't feel like it. But now... She's all about it. She has a banana in one hand, a strawberry in the other. <laughs> she just munches away, and she's happy and content. And so that was a big step for, at least in my opinion, for me to get her to the point where she felt comfortable with this and just, like, introducing her to me and what I smell like and what the, um, the ultrasound probe smells like and what the jelly is. And that was all just, like, step by step. We had to slowly introduce these things to her so she could become okay with the idea of it and that's a good point yeah not only do you have to figure out like where to put the ultrasound wand and how hard to press I'm sure or how yeah. much gel is needed you have to actually build a relationship with the animal and let them trust you or get them to trust you which yeah. is one of my favorite parts of the job is yeah. when you accomplish mm -hmm. that so Absolutely. yeah you get you get a little bit of that yeah. part too that's really and cool. sometimes that process takes a long time it's not something that happens overnight so it takes a lot of time right. and work into the building that relationship yeah. and building that bond. And I'm sure all the fur, too. I, I, yeah. I just thought of that. I bet that didn't help with yeah. the sloth. But. Yeah, you know, the, ch the most challenging one I think we've done is otters because they have that um, layer that's basically like waterproofing. And so it's really hard. Ultrasound works by generating sound waves, and the sound waves have to travel through the skin and bounce off of tissue and back to the probe. So we use gel to help conduct the sound waves, but because they have like a, a basically a waterproofing layer, the gel doesn't penetrate. It's not that easy to get. They've got a shield. They've got yeah, <laughs> essentially. So you have to like basically get them all like get them to like jump in their pool and be wet <laughs> and put jelly on them, and it still isn't. It's still not easy. It's really interesting. So. But yeah, ultrasound comes with all sorts of challenges. Polar bears, their uterus is maybe like the width of a pencil. Wow. So on a bear that's, you know, 800 plus pounds easily, <laughs> it's so hard to find. You know I'm what? sure. I have no idea. That is <laughs> yeah. insane. Yeah. It must grow a lot then with pregnancy. Well, they don't, the, the cubs aren't very big though. They oh. come out and they're about the size of a stick of butter. So oh my gosh. Like, okay. I didn't they're, realize they're that that's small. That's why we also don't end up doing ultrasounds on... Well, we've tried doing ultrasounds on pregnant polar bears, but um, finding a fetus in a bear that big, especially when she's at the point in her pregnancy where she's not really a fan a of little like, <laughs> um, is just a stretch. So it's just been a total challenge. Even when we have, you know, an immobilized bear for 
for a veterinary procedure, we'll always want to see if we can try. And we've had ultrasound techs that work in hospitals come to try, and they still can't do it very well. So yeah, I'm sure. It's, it's really interesting. So ultrasound comes with all sorts of... I know it looks easy. Well, I mean... <laughs> but... Physically, it looks easy. I don't understand how you how it works. Yeah, I, I mean, reading I, the monitor bit, and reading yes. using the actual instruments is a whole other beast. Like Unless that. you see like literally the heartbeat or the ribs, and you guys can point like here's the liver and the spleen. I'm like, it yeah. looks like a black circle. <laughs> I think the same thing every time they shoot, they point out ultrasound to me. I'm like, well, I don't know what we're looking at right? here, but they know what they're talking about. So that's all that matters. Very impressive. <laughs> and like sometimes you just have to take a step back and think about what you just said, because sometimes I think like. I have to look at my life and, oh my gosh, I work with one of the most famous animals in the entire world. That's crazy. <laughs> but you just said the words, like, you have done an ultrasound on a polar bear, on an otter, on a tamandua, on a hippo. Like, I mean, that's crazy. That's really cool. <laughs> very, very cool. Mark, did you yes. have any other questions or anything special for us today? I do have a, a, a trivia set for you guys. Great. So bringing in, you know, Sam set this precedent. I feel like I couldn't let him down and awesome. skip a week of trivia. <laughs> uh -oh. And true to Sam's trivia, these are all just Wikipedia research, quick Google searches. So oh, uh, take these with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to throw this out here as a scientist. Oh, I just blasphemed to the scientist saying I looked on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a source. <laughs> Oh, shoot. We're in trouble. <laughs> We're in trouble. <laughs> Dr. Jesse, she's out. She's yeah. not participating in the Wikipedia quiz. We're just going to go with, if I get these wrong, then that's why. It's, okay. it's Wikipedia. Wikipedia. It's Wikipedia's yep. It's Wikipedia. They're wrong. All right. We got four questions today. So we'll start off with what I think is the easiest question. So this is, I should just like clarify, this is a reproductive quiz. So obviously crew does all their research in helping endangered species reproduce. So I, I figure this is pretty appropriate. Perfect. So. I'm not going to know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so question number one, what animal has the longest gestation period of any mammal? It's got to be, sorry. Go ahead. Elephant, right? Blue whale. It is African elephant. Is it? Yes, Jenna's do you know got the blue one. Whale is? Jenna, I do not have the blue. I was whale gonna go. Now, I was gonna go with elephant, but I wasn't sure. It's got to be close to that, though. We should look it's it like African, twenty-two months, isn't it? It's African elephant, elephant yeah. is twenty-two to twenty-three months. Can you imagine yes. that? Oh my gosh, pregnant for two years. Pregnant for Woo! two years. All you moms out there, <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy to carry a child for nine months, but at least it's not two years. Wow. That's got to be brutal. But now I want to know what the blue whale is. So we'll I'm sure we can. Out. We can figure that I'm out. Sure definitely. Question number two, what species produces the most offspring? This is vertebrates, invertebrates, what species is known to produce the most offspring? At once or in a lifetime? Good question. In, in one, one gestation? In one gestational cycle. But it's gotta be I, 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 I'll say, this is invertebrates are taken into this one too. This is not mammal, this is any animal. Coral? Ooh. You know, this we're getting into semantics now. Is coral an animal or is yes, coral? Coral is an animal, yes. But basically so not coral. That's it's not, not coral. It's, it's not, not like the Wikipedia does not say coral. So we're bringing it back to insects. It's gotta be an insect. It is an insect, you're on the right track. I'll be amazed if you get Jeez. it. Jeez. I mean I wanna say cockroaches, but or mm, that's a good question. But there are so many insects. Spiders? 
It is the African driver ant. Yeah. Oh, ants! Oh, yes, ants the African sure. driver ant. Okay. The queen is known to produce three to four million eggs in a single month, Ooh. which is <laughs> mind-boggling. Yeah, quite frankly. Wow. Yes. Hmm. That was that was a tough one. Though. That African driver ant. I'm not sure. If I never really would heard have of gotten it. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good one. So, question number three now. Which animal is known to have the fewest offspring in its lifetime throughout a full life cycle to raise the fewest offspring? And that makes me think like blue whale or something. I feel like it's got to be something short-lived, though. But then the short-lived animals tend to like have a time all at once. Different kind of reproductive strategies among all animals. Yeah, right? So like... You know, an animal that raises their young for a really long time, they're going to have less because yeah. they don't get pregnant as often. It can't be an elephant again, can it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. use elephant twice. I will, I'll tell you that much. I'm going with blue whale this time, stealing your answer. I'll just give you a hint. Jenna's on the right track. It is an animal that has a very long raising process for their offspring. Oh, they spend a lot of what time. What about tortoise? They don't, well, no, they don't invest. they leave multiple eggs. Yeah. A ring. Jenna just got it. Yes! Orangutan. Really? Yes. They raise their yes. babies for the On average, a female raises three three babies in her lifetime. Wow. So human-like. I don't know. It is human-like. Kind of average. Because what? They is spend... that... Le- is, sorry. No, go is ahead. Is that more than humans? Do humans count into this equation? Oh. Just curious. I, you know, I, I did not check Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. on the human... Uh... I bet humans on... Probably on average would... Be around that, right? I would imagine so. Some. Yeah, I would imagine the average human female, because you know you've got I think it's, you know, fe- females out there kids. raising seven <laughs> yeah. or eight kids, and then you've got plenty of girls who don't have any. Right. So, yeah. yeah, but hmm. interesting. All right, last I like one. These questions are skewed. These are animal questions. These are not necessarily reproductive. Okay, I've got. Okay, I've got. The last one is reproductive. Okay, fair enough. The last one's reproductive here. So you did mention earlier that Crew does a lot of research with AI, artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. When was the first oh, no. successful <laughs> artificial insemination in an animal species? The first documented oh, the successful first. artificial insemination in an animal species. I don't know. That's a terrible specific question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, was it like... Recent? No, not recent. Um, They've been doing AI in, like, cattle and mice for a long time. Mm, I don't know. 1911. 1911. 1956. 1911, 1956. I was on the same kind of thought process as you guys. I'm thinking, like, this is a pretty new procedure. This is surely, like, the 60s or 70s, right? It is the first documented successful AI was in 1780. Italian scientist, I'm going to butcher this, Lazzaro Spallanzari. He conducted a successful artificial insemination of his dog. Yeah, that makes sense. In 1780. I mean, it's not, AI in in theory is not that difficult, in theory. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to be able to get a sample and then put it in a female, but... He did yeah. that turkey baster method. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did they even have turkey basters? <laughs> <laughs> 1780. I don't, know. I don't understand. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And yeah. also that it's documented, and he just did it on his dog. Like, how did he prove that? He 
probably just had a neighbor dog over it. <laughs> 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 yeah, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> no. 1780. I don't know if they're really how strict they are on the signs of this stuff. <laughs> I did think this was interesting, though. The first documented successful AI in humans was not long after, 1790. Oh, wow. What? Scientist John Hunter artificially inseminated um, a human female in 1790 with a successful carry to birth. Wow. I feel like humans are easier than dogs, though, because, you know, like, you can get a sample from a human male. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just by asking. I love that. Okay, so I can't wait to have you back because there's eight more, eight hundred. As I've said, yeah, we've got to do another episode, definitely. But did we miss anything we wanted to hit on today specifically? Is there anything else you'd like to share? Or Um, no, I would say earlier just to go back to something that you were asking before about like how to get to this if people are interested yeah absolutely i always tell like incoming students interns whatever be annoying so more so be persistent yeah um if you're contacting people it's something that you're really interested in and you don't hear back the first time try again because people are busy or it just falls by the wayside things happen um but if you really want it you just have to really put some effort into it and try and be enthusiastic and you know, if you like it, just go for it. You can get there. Definitely, yeah. That applies to so many things, zookeeping yeah, as well. It's <laughs> really persistent. Persistence too. and perseverance. And I think yeah. that's, to a larger picture, like that's science too, right? Yeah. You're going to have setbacks every step of the way. And I'm sure Absolutely. you mentioned in your research, some some of your research, you didn't quite find the answers you were hoping to yeah. find and you weren't able to... Absolutely. We always come up with more questions too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... It's a slow process. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the work you do. It's really incredible. Definitely. But Jenna, did you have any more questions for? I do. Uh, I would love to know what can I do. Do you have any advice for people that you know? It it doesn't have to be science related or anything. But what would you give advice to just help the world be a better place, be a better conservationist? Yeah. Um, Spay and neuter your pets. Yes, I love this one. (laughs) Great answer. (laughs) Yeah, feral populations of cats and dogs are really extreme, and they eat a lot of birds and small mammals, and it's really not great for the environment, and it's not a great course of life for them either, so I would say less cat and dog babies, please. Yes, the repro scientist, please spay and neuter your cats and and dogs. Oh, I think that's a great one, so thank you for sharing. It's easy. Don't even have to explain it a whole lot, you know? Everyone can do that, so... If you're at home and have a cat or a dog that you've considered not spaying or neutering for some reason, we definitely urge you to... Strongly recommend yes. it. Yes. Yeah, strongly recommend it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jesse, yeah, for welcome. being here and everything you do. And um, we're so excited to share this with everyone. I'm sure they will... Yes. Well, maybe not everyone, but they might be like... <laughs> Have as many questions as we do, yeah. and their minds blown as much as us. Send them on over. I'm happy to answer questions. Definitely. Thank you so. I know your time is so valuable. Thank you so much for spending some of it with Thank us. Thank you for and having me. Thanks for teaching people about what scientists do, because like me and Jenna, a lot of people are. I'm still kind of clueless. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I do this interview. I still have questions. Like we need to do a day in the life, and then we need to include pictures and watch how you do these things. And Anytime. Hormones from poop. I don't get it. What do you see? Is it a red line? Is it a blue line? Is it a yes? Is it a, you're Mostly pregnant? Blue. Mostly blue. Okay. Yeah. okay. Mostly blue. Good to know. 
<laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.